What happens when two podcasts get together to talk about revolutionary movies? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. For this episode of Footnoting History, we decided to try something a little different. Christine and I, from Footnoting History, are joined by Rutger and Gill of Pod Academy, and we're going to go off script and have a conversation about the movies Les Mis and The Patriot and what they say about revolutions, history, movies, the whole nine yards. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Elizabeth from Footnoting History. You may know us as the podcast that talks about how the best stories are always in the footnotes. And we are joining Pod Academy today. Christine and I are joining Pod Academy today to talk about revolutions in historically based movies. Um, I will be uh, kind of doing our little intro for The Patriot. Um, but we have three other movies that we're going to be covering over a two-episode series. Would anyone else like to just name their movies or themselves? Sure. I'm Christine. I work with Liz on Footnoting History, and I will be picking up where she leaves off for the second half of episode one and leading us through a discussion of the 2012 adaptation of the musical Les Miserables. And then I will be handing it off to the lovely Pod Academy gentleman. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Rutger of uh, Pod Academy, and I will be talking you through the 1987 movie The Last Emperor, uh, the first of the uh, second episode about revolutions, the ones that are taking place in the 20th century. Hi, I'm Gil, the second half of uh, Pod Academy, and I will be highlighting the 1965 movie Dr. Zhivago following the events from the end of World War I throughout the Russian Revolution to cap off our Revolutions in Movies podcast episode. But can I just say this is very exciting because we're in three different countries doing movies from four different countries. <laughs> like, we are covering the whole world right now. Well, not really, but, you know, much more than we usually do in one episode. I know. Um, okay, so uh, we're going to get started with The Patriot. So The Patriot is a movie from 2000. Uh, some of you might recognize it. It was about the American Revolution, specifically, though, the South Carolina campaign. It was one of Mel Gibson's kind of war movies, if you're familiar with Braveheart. Which I have never seen. Really? I know. Okay. I'm surprised, too. Well, I'm stepping back from that one. Um, so... <laughs> It was actually described in an article I read as um, the American Braveheart. So I think that kind of fits, especially I, I watched the movie or rewatched the movie with my husband. And there is a, a final scene at the end, which I was like, this is exactly from Braveheart. Um, but it's about, again, so the American Revolution, the South Carolina campaign, it focuses on Mel Gibson is playing a character named Benjamin Martin. And he's actually based on a, an amalgam of a number of American revolutionaries Thomas Sumter, Andrew Pickens, Francis Marion, Daniel Morgan, Elijah Clark. And so it plays into this hole because some of them wanted to fight, didn't want to fight. The largest one that he's based on is Francis Marion, who became known as the Swamp Fox. And mm -hmm. if anyone knows about um, the American Revolution, guerrilla warfare was a big part of that because, right, it's like this scrappy group of guys who don't really have a lot of training. And, and they're against the British Army who are all lined up. 
And so uh, Marion Francis, the Swamp Fox, kind of uses that guerrilla warfare in in the South Carolina campaign to take on the British Army because they can't beat them in like the traditional methods of combat of just lining up on the field. And it, it tells that story. It's cinematically really pretty, incredibly violent. Um, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood. Um, my husband just kept going, oh, there's ah, that's a lot of stuff happening there. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that is definitely, um, but again, Braveheart. <laughs> well, I, I did, it, the first thing in my notes is also Braveheart 2.0. And it's uh, yeah, uh, Mel Gibson from from Australia uh, fighting the Redcoats in various movies in in Braveheart and in this one as well. And uh, I looked a little bit at how the costume design makes sense. And so the the mm-hmm. baddie in this movie, basically the English Reinhard Heydrich type of figure, yes, he is a redcoat. Except in reality, he walked around in green. But of course, that's not that's not recognizably mm-hmm. uh, enough. So he needs to have the red thing, but then with a bit of a green sash, so that you can still see that they're kind of like the Germans. Um, and then hey, they have to fight back. You know, the, the scrappy, poor, downtrodden colonials in their mansions are having a hard time. <laughs> I know, they're, they're yeah. massive plantation homes yeah. that, you know, they have to come out of to I do things. I thought South Carolina was a real interesting choice. So, to, so I think... For the basis of it. Well, A, I mean, so I'm not going to speak for Christine, but I know usually when we talk about the American Revolution, we seem to focus a lot on New England, I feel. And so... I feel... But I was thinking about that. because mm-hmm. Is that because we're from the north so having taught u.s history in georgia now for almost four or five years no it is is. i always thought we were because elizabeth is from new york even though she lives in georgia Mm -hmm. so we were both educated in the north and i always just figured it was like a local thing you know like they would focus Mm -hmm. on what was happening wherever you were from in the area at the time but i guess i'm wrong well, so I would say that there's more Georgia history, like we'll talk more about Georgia battles or Georgia figures, but it's still predominantly that story of, you know, the New Englanders coming in right. and the various battles that are fought in the North. So I, I also thought it was interesting that they chose a South Carolina perspective. And what I did um, was I looked up uh, who the author of the movie was. And I did this for each of the movies, right? Because the Patriot is the only one that's not based on someone who was an eyewitness to the revolution or someone who lived through the revolution. Like every other movie we're covering have people who like Victor Hugo saw, right? The uprising of June 5th. And so when we talk about Les Miserables, that, that plays in, but this one was by, let me confirm his name, Robert Rodat. And Robert Rodat is the same guy who wrote Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. So really? Yes. Yeah. I looked that Whoa. up too. Yeah. So I was in. Intri- so he went. That's so weird because Saving Private Ryan is such a good movie, and this movie we haven't mentioned it yet, but I think it's really, really, a really, really, really bad movie. Yeah. So historically, uh, this is. Well, maybe you were alluding to it before. <laughs> well, but just it's like a as a movie, movie, but it definitely yeah. is telling you a story it wants you really to swallow. <laughs> yeah. So it well, it is interesting, right? Definitely. Because Saving Private Ryan is also cinematically mm-hmm. super pretty in, and horribly disturbing. Um, I cried through the entire D-Day opening scene of Saving Private Ryan when I saw it for the first time because you're just watching people be slaughtered. Um, so it is really interesting. But so the author said that he specifically likes the idea that he puts people into moral quandaries where like both sides have an option 
where they're kind of both legitimately right, but then they have to choose one. And so that's the Tom Hanks character in Saving Private Ryan, you know, has to make this decision to basically sacrifice his entire group to go after this one guy. Um, and in this movie, in The Patriot, so what the deal with The Patriot is, and they steal this not from Francis Marion, who actually joined up from the revolution right away. Um, they take this from another revolutionary who was who refused to fight until they burned down his house. Oh, and it comes personal. Mm. Yeah, so, and it's this type of idea. So in the movie, however, mm. it's that Benjamin Martin, who's the character played by Mel Gibson, refuses to fight until they murder his son Thomas. Right, or until, I should say who, until the British, um, played by that, played by... So the British... Lucius Malfoy. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's exactly what I also said. I'm like, oh, my God, they got Lucius Malfoy. Yeah. To play. And then I'm like, oh, that's... The super baddie. Baddie, baddie. <laughs> um, so sorry. So Colonel William Tavington is the British um, kind of sadistic British guy who goes around killing people. And so he's the one who kills uh, Benjamin Martin's teenage son, Thomas. And at that point, Benjamin Martin, who had fought in the French and Indian War... Um, which was also an incredibly also violent period, and had, that's why he had eschewed violence, because he had been so violent during the French and Indian War, kind of... And he I don't know, really a, hated a, the French. Yeah, and a flip, a, you know, a light switch, like, goes off in him, and he takes his two younger sons, and they go out, and they begin to use guerrilla warfare tactics against um, the British. And so, but it's that idea again, right, where he was morally opposed to violence even though he believed in independence and then yeah. they kill his son and he's like, well, all bets are off now. We're going to yeah. go in. It's like that hero, the so call to action moment that they talk about in like novels, mm -hmm. right? How you have like the build up, and it's all of a sudden the hero has their call to action. Will they or will they not answer it? And what obstacles get in their way from doing it? Like it's literally textbook that. And I'm not mm -hmm. complaining about that because it's, yeah. you know, a classic storytelling thing. But I remember mm -hmm. going, oh, all right, now it's personal. So now he's going to be really angry. And right. that's why in all I was telling yeah. so, Liz before this, in all of my notes, I referred to him as Angry Dad, because that was like his driving factor throughout the whole thing. It was like, I'm really angry, and I'm a dad. Yeah, he was fine with uh, sitting out the war. That's why it's also kind of funny that this movie is called The right. Patriot, because it might, it's not really about his patriotism. It, a better name would have been right? The Family Man <laughs> it's or a, something right. like that. Right. Angry Dad. Well, right, because it is, it's it's wholly personal. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything until they take my kids. Right. Rest in peace, Heath Ledger. Always oh. adorable, always wonderful. So I realized as I was watching it that the son Thomas was played by Gregory Smith, who was a very popular teen actor in the 90s. And I'm like, oh, they just killed Thomas. So I don't know. It was a lot of moments <laughs> happening for me as I relived like my adolescence while watching this movie. Um, so there are a couple of things about the movie historically that stuck out for me and one of them was how slavery was or was not included in the narrative especially because this is south carolina and the south carolina campaign and south carolina is or was um basically one of the leading pro-slavery colonies and states like as as i learned in my last episode that i just wrote about georgia slavery south carolina was the state that guided georgia into how they should um legalize slavery and how they should codify slavery and all these different things and yet they make this this thing of benjamin martin having um black people who are workers on his field but they are not slaves of course not that was an interesting moment when he when they because i kept thinking to myself huh you can make a really complex movie about this being in south carolina and then they were like oh 
but by the way, they just really want to be here. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's where we're going with this. Okay, let's just skip over all of that. That's, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I think that was just like the, the very concerted effort to make uh, everything really clear cut in the movies. The Americans yes. are good guys. Yeah. There's yes. this black guy over there that's fighting with them. And uh, Benjamin Martin is not racist at all, even though I don't think he ever no. said anything to him uh, throughout the movie. I don't remember, but maybe it was Mel Gibson's choice not to talk to the black man. I'm not sure. And there's one guy who is like super, super, super racist. And when does right. he stop being racist? When the black guy is just so over the top heroic, risks his, li risk his life to save him and everybody. And only then the very average white racist acknowledges the humanity of the black hero of war. So you have to be so extraordinarily competent in order to get a modicum of respect of just like being a person. And at the end, of course, the black guy is part of the reconstruction of the town. As, he, as if he is among equals. And uh, for me, watching it, rewatching it now, as things are going down in the US, it was especially uncomfortable. Just like, this is, uh, this is too much. This is too much. This is not unrealistic. Who, who, is, this, uh, is this story of the American uh, experiment, how is it relevant? Maybe, okay, to this specific black guy, but it's not relevant to the history that will go on after the American Revolution for slaves, former slaves, or just, you know, African-Americans. No, it's definitely an attempt to make very clear delineations about who is good and, and who is bad. And uh, it definitely makes what could be a really complex and interesting film about how it was not that clear cut become something that's almost like a caricature of what was really going on because it flattens it significantly. Mm. Um, there is a conversation at one point when towards the end of the movie, mm. I don't remember who it is. If it's the, if it's the father or the son gives them the, gives everybody the opportunity to leave before they're going to go into that like final push mm -hmm. and they all like go back to their families and the people come back. And, and as you're talking about the, the black gentleman is like, yeah, I'm here for you. You know? And I, I sat there and I thought, well, okay. I mean, yes, there, there obviously there were black people that fought on both sides. Um, you know, I, I did a whole episode for footnoting history about black loyalists. Huh. So they, you don't see them in this movie really at all. They get one line. They get one line where the British soldier says, you know, if you join our side, we'll give you freedom. And then that's it. You never hear about them again. Yeah. And he says it in a sinister way, even though it's uh, giving them freedom. But uh, even that is, uh, oh, I will give you freedom. <laughs> Yeah. That's but, supposed to be a know, good thing. <laughs> it didn't all go well for black loyalists afterwards. They didn't get the things that were promised to them. So I guess it kind of was sinister at the time. Um, but it was interesting how much it was all downplayed. Because, it, it, I mean, it was a real opportunity to say a lot of things that was not taken. You know, it, instead, it just sticks to the main narrative of very, very good guy, very, very bad guy. And nothing else matters. Oh, and, and the, the badness of the bad guys is also really over over the top, right? Uh, the, the scene, actually, in the, when I was watching this movie, around the same time, I was also watching another better movie, but much more shocking still, a Belarusian movie called Come and See, which is about uh, the Eastern Front and the Einsatzgruppe in, in uh, Belarus. 
both movies, and I watched them almost side by side, have a scene mm-hmm. where the townspeople are herded into a church and the church is set on fire. And in the one movie, it is, uh, you know, the the horror of it. And in the other, there's sort of the, the, the heroism or like it's... The, the way the Patriots... First of all, I don't think that actually happened. Like, I don't... I think the, the British were bad, but I don't think they were that bad that they did that. I don't Those know. kind of atrocities. Please knows more about that than I do. Okay, two things. I wanted to add one thing um, that I guess I was muted before, so that makes sense now. Um, Francis Marion, who this is based on, so the Swamp Fox, did own slaves, right? Like, he was a South Carolina gentleman who owned slaves. He was actually tasked with... Um, I think it was by Gates or someone else, one of the other revolutionary generals, to kill black loyalists. And he did. Like, he, so it's very, very interesting that they went this very other way with what was going on um, instead of the reality. And in fact, after the war, he apparently came home to his plantation and found out that all of his enslaved people had escaped. and so he had to go and buy new enslaved people. Like that's part of his his life story is he, oh, how, and, and I think that's why I also found it really odd. And like Christine said, there's lacking nuance. They did then try to show um, the Gullah people of South Carolina who were a black um, community who still exist in South Carolina to this day. And I thought that was also very kind of like ham-fisted, like, oh, look at these white people who are totally accepted by this black group because of their behavior. Yes, that's where they hide. And it's the gullah. And I just, that, it was incredibly, um, yeah, it was awkward. Um, Okay, now to return, (laughs) this is going to be so fun to edit. Now to return to the question of burning down churches. Um, So while in the Americas, they did not burn down churches that had people in them, they did burn down churches and communities. They would usually put the people in the center. And this is not to say that the revolutionaries were not going around being horrifically like violent themselves, but they did do that. But what I actually looked up, so the first time I saw the Patriot, which would have been circa 2000, a lot of articles had come out talking about like, oh, the British aren't that bad. They wouldn't have done this in the church. That was something the Nazis did, right? And so it's really bad to use that. And I said something along the lines to my dad about this. And my dad was like, well, they did it in Ireland. And I, I never looked it up past that because I was like, uh-huh, sure, dad. But, you know, here we are 20 years later. And I was like, I guess it's time to Google what my father meant by that. So my father is 100% Irish. His father came from Ireland. That's why this is like a bit of a thing. So I, I Googled, as one does, as any historian does. And it, it turns out that in um, 1649, when Cromwell went to Ireland and they did they attacked Drahada. So, and it's known as the massacre of Drahada. Not only did they do it where they lined up people who had surrendered and shot them, like the Royalists and everybody else who was in Drahada who openly surrendered, they shot them. A bunch of people ran to one of the churches for like sanctuary for safety. And there were also like priests and other people in the church and the British burned it with them in it knowingly. And so while I understand and I don't, I don't actually think Robert wrote that because I think if he was using this as an idea, he would have said this a long time ago. Like, hey, I took this from Cromwell. But I do think it's interesting that we, that people are like, oh, see, the British would never have done this. But there are instances of British abuse in their past, especially when we talk about anything to do with colonization or imperialism, that I wasn't really 
that shocked by this behavior, I guess. But this is uh, six, 1649. So, but 1649, but the American Revolution is 1776 to 1783, right? So that's closer in time than 1940 um, and World War II. Yeah, because it's not actually a historical movie. It's a movie about, about the present to show, to give justification to what happened later. And you have to have the bad guys be bad guys. And you have to feel good about the heroes if it was more nuanced and the, Brit and the, the British were more good guys. And then that would be, have to be like a 10-part series, miniseries on HBO or something like that and not a blockbuster movie. Uh, also, just, uh, yeah. another thing that bugged me, I don't know, as a man who had to uh, spend uh, three years in the uh, Israeli military here, the scene in the church when the young woman shames the men into joining the war, as if, like, mm. are, you not, uh, are you not men? Yeah. Like, why do I have to go and kill myself uh, for this thing? Yes. Okay, thank you. No, thank no you. yeah, no, when, <laughs> when she did that... Oh. Okay, that scene got me so angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, I sat th I was like, how dare she do that? She's not going to war. Sit down, lady. <laughs> no, I, I definitely, when she did that, and of course, on rewatching it, and you know what's going to happen, and you're like, are you really, like, right. really, you are shaming them into this, like, using their masculinity and their all these things, and especially right. when you have young kids, like, you had, like, 12 and 13-year-old boys who stood up at that point, and it's like, are we really... Right. Yeah, we're doing okay. This is where the movie's going with that one. Um, First of all, she was doing it to impress Heath Ledger. <laughs> okay, because they get together really shortly after that in the movie. I mean, that's Second facts. of all, if I was her and I had survived, I would have such survivor's guilt that I sent all these men off. Yeah telling them that they had to go do this, and they all got slaughtered. Right. I would not mm -hmm. be able to live with myself if I was that person. Because if you're not willing to go yourself, it's kind of hard for you to sit there and be like, hey, bro, time for you to get up and like go prove yourself. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was a tough scene. Oh, that yeah. was an incredibly tough scene when she did that, and people were standing up, and oh, yeah, no, that was, oh... Yeah, and they didn't want to. They were like, yeah. okay, I have to stand up now. Yeah, I mean, I wondered if that was an attempt to try and give a woman like a big role in rallying the troops uh, no. but it didn't really play that way no. when you watched it <laughs> and it's and it says something it was... about the what people were thinking about these kinds of issues in the year 2000 yep. because today that wouldn't fly that wouldn't mm -hmm. fly yeah i was actually i think a, a lot of things in this movie wouldn't fly but also the like the really for me amateurish uh, amateurish battle scenes when he saves his kid I thought to myself, what, what this? It, it seems if you compare it to Gladiator, which came out the same mm -hmm. year, it's like worlds apart. The battle mm -hmm. scenes for me, yeah, and all the cliches, running with the flag. Yes, that was that was and the how he part. was like a the running with and he was like a ninja when oh. Lucius Malfoy tried to kill him, he became a ninja. But, oh, no, the know. running with the flag was the Braveheart scene, right, where all the troops are lined up and he's like, you know, they can take our freedom or whatever, but they can't take our or they can take our yeah. lives, or they, whatever, if they can't take our freedom. That was it. I was like, I'm watching that scene, and I'm like, mm. it's Braveheart. Mm. Here we go. But he's got an American flag. <laughs> but flag symbolism goes into a lot of these revolutionary mm. movies, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's like the one thing that like brings us all together is for Re this flag that symbolizes <laughs> everything that we stand for. Whether or not the flags are accurate. Well, right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I actually then, I, of course, spent a good while trying to look up, like, the history of the flag and was that the correct flag and what flag should have been used in the scene. And I couldn't find enough conclusive things that I feel like I can firmly speak on it, but I definitely feel like that's a thing, right? They they use whatever... So we were talking earlier about how um, their costuming was largely correct except for um, the British general not wearing his green um, jacket and his troops wearing their green jackets. But the flag, I was really trying to figure out what would have been the correct flag to have been used in this battle scene and would Heath Ledger have picked it up. So, And I love that we're referring to him as Heath Ledger. (laughs) Nobody is talking about him as Gabriel Martin. (laughs) We're all like, so what? I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I'm sorry. I couldn't remember his name throughout the movie because I I just kept thinking, oh, I I miss Heath Ledger. Like that (laughs) that kept happening to me. Briefly, go back to the... The six, what I tried to say about the 1649 mm-hmm. thing. So the the thing that Cromwell did is kind of more in the context of the religious warfare that was going on during the 17th century in Europe, which was incredibly brutal. And I guess, in my view, the, the Patriot in that time is that's when the Enlightenment had been happening, right? And for me, also, the name of the movie reminds me a little bit of what was happening in the Netherlands around that same time, which is that there was these uh, Republican uh, liberal uh, movements called the Patriots, which were more about, you know, renewing the state and sort of getting rid of the stadtholders and um, becoming more like an equal society with equal rights for everybody. And so that, to me, the, the time, okay, the, the, the time between 1649 1776 is shorter than the time between that and 1940, but still there's an enormous, to my mind, uh, evolution in, in, in people's worldview and thinking about how to treat others, uh, right? The, the 30 years war uh, is, is long gone, and now we're in the time of... Uh, equal rights for everybody and the, you know the French Revolution the American Revolution so even though the time is not that long I think the mentality is probably so quite I'm different. gonna push back on that um, so Christine and I are trained medievalists and we're actually not as enamored of the Enlightenment's alleged successes as having you know changed <laughs> worldviews okay. yeah she's um, putting that very so politely one... we have big negative thoughts about the Enlightenment Okay, okay. The Enlightenment categorized a lot of people. <laughs> like, that's where the Enlightenment is where we start getting to the ideas of categorization that's going to end up with um, you know, our racist categories and everything, right? Where certain people are at certain levels and certain people are inferior and these people aren't here and these people aren't there. And I think if you look at any of the history of British imperialism in the 1800s, like in India or in Africa, um, especially late 1800s in um, uh, Africa, you're going to see a lot of horribly abusive behavior. And so I'm not, I am not convinced that the Enlightenment changed a lot of these warfare tactics for how the British would have dealt with people. Now, again, we have no record of them burning down a church during the American Revolution with people inside it. So I will give us that, that it was borrowed and over the top in that one way. But I don't think a lot of people, especially from the countries that the British colonized, also, I mean, if we're talking as Americans, we bring back in slavery. A lot of the slave systems that were in the colonies were British slave systems, right? Those were Caribbean-based British slave systems, and those were horrifyingly brutal, which is also why it's interesting that South Carolina, we give right. Benjamin Martin this, I don't have enslaved people, um, 
big motif thing going on because South Carolina had brought over a lot of the Caribbean plant planters who the sugar plantations, all these things that treated mm -hmm. people really horribly. So we... Well, also it also ties into the concept of saying equal rights, but it's really only equal rights for certain specific groups of people. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so here's my question then. If, if the Redcoats had had the Maxim gun, um, would they have used it the way they used it in India or Africa, but then well, uh, against the American I revolutionaries? So. I think they probably Oh, would. yeah. Yeah. I don't think it would have occurred to them not to, especially by the time you were in the revolution. Um, yeah, I have, I have no problem seeing that. And perhaps that's because I descend from people who were colonized by the British. I am not as tripped up about, oh, the British weren't that evil. In fact, I would like to have it not, not necessarily here because here we are doing it. But I would rather us focus on instead of defending British practices in the American colonies, but discuss British tactics in other colonies and how they were or were not um, abusive or horrifically. Um, well, but doesn't yeah. it, it also even but even on a simpler level, it can also just tie into access. If you have it, you're probably going to use it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I mean, isn't that one of the reasons why some people try and like prevent people from having nuclear weapons? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have it, you can't use it. Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that everybody's going to use everything all the time because I don't really know where anybody stands on those situations personally. That's that's not even what I'm trying to get into. But if they had th that weaponry, we mm -hmm. cannot definitively say they would have chosen not to use it. Mm -hmm. I have I a mean, question I, I to, to, to ask of you and to see what, uh, what you think. I think that out of the four uh, revolution movies that we have about the American Revolution, the French revolutions, let's say, uh, the last emperor, like the, the the fall of the of the empire in China, and the Russian Revolution, the American Revolution was the least revolutionary. And how different would the world history be had the British won, considering how the UK is today in many ways not that different than America when you compare it to how the French Revolution just changed the course of the entire uh, history of Europe and China today being something totally different than it was before the fall of the emperor. Well, well, the specific events in Les Mis are less revolutionary than the specific events in... Yeah, in, I'm like uh, lumping it uh, with the French Patriot. Revolution, let's say, like the entire process yeah. of how it impacted right. the way the society is built and the rights and all that. But even, even that, ultimately, you still get like, you know, 20 something years of empire right after the 1832 so mm -hmm. um it's still that mo that film um france didn't change that fast i think that the american revolution i mean if you look at who's in charge before even if you look at the colonial legislatures a lot of the people who are the colonial legislators who become the revolutionaries are in charge before the revolution and after the revolution right mm -hmm. like there's not a lot of societal change that happens in the colonies um the political change that happens in the colonies is largely that they no longer are a monarchy. But right. the guys who are in charge are in charge. Well, but, but the natural experiment has mm -hmm. been done. Uh, 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 if uh, the British had won, I suppose then in the whole continent, more people would be into hockey <laughs> because that's basically what Canada that's is. Or cricket, cricket. No baseball, just yeah, cricket. You could argue that they would have been independent eventually anyway. Yeah, eventually, definitely. You could you could argue that I mean a lot of the other places that were British held eventually became yeah, independent became, yeah. or you know entered the Commonwealth yeah. and a different sort of standard. So it's not impossible mm -hmm. that eventually yeah, uh, it would have yeah. happened no matter what. Because there was a lot of conversation, you know, right after the 
uh, American Revolution about, well, okay, so just how far do we want to go away from what British society is? And it it wasn't a foregone conclusion that they were going to necessarily not have titles, right? Because those are things that were talked about. What are we going to call our leader? Is he going to be a president? Is he going, like, what are we going to do? Is he going to be a king, right? Right. Like, they floated the idea that they would just start their own dynasty in the U.S. And you can contrast that to the societies, maybe the French Revolution, the French Revolution, what they were trying to do is revolutionary beyond the imagination change even the days of the weeks and just like mm-hmm. just completely change the calendar, the calendar <laughs> yeah. is one of my favorite creations in all of history because it's so crazy like completely change the way that you even that you, yeah that you experience your day-to-day and obviously imperial china <laughs> and imperial china versus communist china is just a totally different society and the soviet union and right. the pre-revolutionary mm-hmm. russia is just like Totally different, like the, like hierarchy, social hierarchy, and right. the way the societies are built. In the American Revolution, it's as if you just like change mm-hmm. hands, one boss, same as old boss. Right. It's actually to tie it to the French situation. I did an episode a couple of years ago about um, a woman named Elizabeth Patterson, who was from Baltimore. And she lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And her thought process was, I'm really upset that this revolution happened. Because I really want to live in like European high society, but over here. So then she marries Napoleon Bonaparte's youngest brother, Mm. right? And she thinks, now I'm going to go over to Europe and like everything is going to be great. So I'm going to get away from this like horrible United States that gave up everything that made it like cool because European society is so much more superior to what we have over here. And then Napoleon's like, no, I'm good. See you later. And makes Jerome divorce her. And you said, you're like, okay, but that she's, I'm sure she's not the only person who felt that way. Right. Like she's the one that I'm, I read about and I studied. But, you know, there were more people out there who were like, I don't really know how I feel about this whole let's mm-hmm. have a president and no titles oh, yeah. and like people. for the people, by the people. Right. Uh, yeah. Like, what does that yeah. mean? Um, what's that going to look like long term? You know, mm-hmm. when you take out the hierarchy, what happens? Like, it, I think a lot of people really would have questioned that whether or not, you know, mm-hmm. now we all know how things go. Mm. And you can see in these movies. It's very dangerous. Revolutions are very dangerous, regardless yes. of good intentions. It's just right. like for the people living at the time, it's, inc- it's just like you get right. ground to a pulp by the wheels of history. And it's just like there's the, even the good guys. There are no good guys in revolutions. And I think that's also a recurring mm-hmm. theme in the movies. You can see that there's not a lot of nuance, not only in the Patriot, because revolutions are not very nuanced times. You have the regime and you have the revolutionaries, counter-revolutionaries. It's very clear-cut, even if you have several uh, forces fighting at the same time. And the Russian Revolution was very convoluted. But it creates also movies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that politically are not nuanced. You have the good guys and you have the bad guys. Here it's the British, later with Javert. And the communists uh, portrayed very unfavorably in The Last Emperor. And the communists uh, portrayed very unfavorably in uh, Dr. Zhivago. I see that uh, Rutger is uh, shaking his head. Mm -hmm. Uh, In The Last Emperor, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think they're portrayed somewhat favorably, actually. Uh, Well, I think think it depends on who's making the movie. But I also, bringing back my earlier point about um, who wrote The Patriot... Um, when we talk about who wrote the story behind the movie, right? Because The Last right. Emperor is based on The Last Emperor's autobiography, but right. also after he had, like, become a full-fledged, like, communist revolution, like, this is the way to go, like, he had bought into it. And so it's going to be really interesting. But it's also, like, 
I was thinking that the the um the revolution that's in 1911 to 1912 that you know brings out the Qing dynasty and but he's allowed to stay in the Forbidden Empire. We don't get a lot of that revolution because he's in the Forbidden City, not the Forbidden, the forbidden Empire, Empire, the Forbidden City. And so, see, I was checking myself. Yeah, but um so it's really interesting what we see or don't see also because of who's writing them, right? So it's it's Bo- Boris Pasternak who is, you know, was born in 1890 is writing Dr. Zhivago. Um and then Victor Hugo, who's a pro-Republican revolutionary, is the one who's writing Definitely. Les Miserables, and he had seen that. So it's, it's, it's also the movie making. I think you made a really good point when you said The Patriot was made in 2000, and how would that movie be made today if it would be made today? Um, so it's also when the movies are made, but also what's kind of their eyewitness mm-hmm. account that they're using really, really intrigued me on how the movies were then created so i mean boris pasternak writes dr zhivago and he can't it's not going to be published Mm -hmm. in the soviet union right it has to get smuggled out to italy and it's published in italy and so that's also going to feed into the narrative of everything that how the film is constructed and that lack of nuance that you mentioned that there are there are the good guys and then there are the lucius malfoys of the world (laughs) who are coming in and are just like these archetype caricature bad guys who are super bad, and you're not necessarily getting enough of the nuance. Like, I know um, in in Les Miserables, like, Victor Hugo, he didn't, like, slam Louis Philippe and everything, but, you know, the movie and everything, I'm not going to say that that slams it, but it kind of ignores the fact that he might have seen that this was not... He was maybe a little more nuanced in his writing than the movie becomes. Well, he also had about a bajillion pages worth of... (laughs) Yeah, he did. ...conversation about it, where, you know... He was like, and, and not he, a short same, book. No, no, same with Dr. Zhivago, right? Like right. nobody's writing like a 30 page treatment of like, let me tell you what's <laughs> happening. No, these are horrifyingly long. I have a, one, one small footnote. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, look at that. We're taking oh, over. Yeah. We're taking over all uh, your podcast. That's it. <laughs> Planting our well, flag. I was, I, so I didn't know what, uh, like what you said about when the American Revolution was happening and uh, what are we going to do? Uh, like it, it wasn't apparently a foregone conclusion that there was going to be a republic, and actually the same kind of happened with the Dutch like war of independence, right? There was this sort of declaration of, well, we don't really like this king, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so so you know you're you're out. Yeah. Um, uh, but then it wasn't like okay, so obviously we're going to be a republic. No, there was actually some shopping around. Like, would you like to be our king, or how how about you? Uh-huh. And then in the end, like nobody really wanted to and so then this this office which had already existed before was was kept on of the stead holder which is the, is the first part stead mm-hmm. is like from instead so basically like the regent or somebody who's just sort of for the duration while we don't have a king for the next like 200 years <laughs> we're just going to have this person <laughs> here uh, and then we'll see what happens and so it was just the, the republic kind of just came about by accident and, basically. and now you do have a king mm-hmm. right and now we do have a king, thanks to the English, because they meddle in everybody's business, including ours. <laughs> we also have a king; he's a prime minister. Uh, and uh, and as a uh, as an Israeli living in Israel, we are no fans of what the British left uh, here uh, behind them as they left, like everywhere else. Uh, everybody's hating everybody, and uh, no be- no ability to have a functioning state and uh, ethnic tensions. And uh, yeah, thank you, Brits. Thank you. Which, by the way, is very funny to me that we're talking about. I do so much British history for us. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, 
Okay. So no, this is like the stuff I don't usually cover in my episodes because <laughs> my British history episodes are all like social history. So it's like, so-and-so had an affair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that type of a thing. <laughs> and now it's like, and then they, How horrible. Then they ruined everything. <laughs> right. But, but that's why it's a footnote, right? But Because the uh, idea that, you know, British colonization, British imperialism ruined a lot of things. Right, no, it's not. That's not the footnote. Like, that's the history books. Like, that's that's political history that we already get kind of taught maybe we don't don't get taught in the terms that they ruined everything but we do get taught that they go into countries and what they did and what gets left behind so that's why we do the footnotes right (laughs) exactly so when i come in it's like one specific instance that happened to one person you know it's a little different Mm. but anyway yes we can move to france now they had their own problems (laughs) (laughs) it's true they did um so my film was Les Miserables, and there's many different films of this adaptation of this book. Um, but mine was the 2012 um, Tom Hooper directed adaptation of the musical, which I love that we are doing because I actually said to Liz right after we decided on this movie, I was like, this is great because it's a film adaptation of a stage musical that was translated into English from the original French that was an adaptation of a French book. <laughs> so you're going through, from by, from when you go from Victor Hugo writing it um, when he was in exile, up until this movie, you have gone through so many different incarnations. It's a miracle that any of his original thoughts and themes actually come right. through in it. Right. It says a lot about uh, the work. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at it and you go, okay, yes, there are things that are changed in every version from the one before it. But ultimately, you still get a lot of, I think, what he was going for in the original. It was really interesting for me to look at this um, from a historical perspective, because I've spent pretty much my entire life obsessing over the musical version of it. Like, I can still tell you the, the exact moment that I first heard it like I know exactly where I was I know when I saw it I saw many people saw it a lot more than I did but I went to the original Broadway production something like 30 times you know and I was a teenager at the time so my parents were taking me bless them for that (laughs) but so looking at it now and it was very hard to watch it and not pick at it as a piece of musical theater adaptation but to look at it as um, how it was portraying what Hugo wanted what Hugo was saying and what that says about us and society and looking at it in a more modern perspective. But the interesting thing for me with it was when you're now, like people always used to say to me, oh, it's that musical about the French Revolution. I think, oh my gosh. Okay, is it a musical about the French Revolution? It's the musical about an event in French history. But I pretty much tell people that like the entire 1800s was basically one giant French Revolution. (laughs) because I was looking at it and going, okay, to understand how not the French Revolution this is, you have to look at it and say, if you go back to the 1780s, you still have Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette on the throne. You get into the 1790s, that's the French Revolution everybody really knows about, right? You're getting, they get executed, there's guillotines everywhere, Robespierre's over there. By the end of the 1790s, you have a new government, the Directorate, that then changes into... Napoleon coming in in 1799, but he's not emperor yet. He's not emperor until 1804. Then you have him getting overthrown, coming back, getting overthrown again, getting replaced again by Louis XVIII, who then is like one of the few people to actually die while on the throne instead of getting 
tossed off of it. He gets, you know, followed up by Charles X. Charles X then gets overthrown, then has Louis Philippe come in, and then you get Lamez. <laughs> which is like a whirlwind thing of how yes. not the actual French Revolution. Yes. And after that, you have 30 more years of uh, right. exactly. coming and going revolutions. Right. Yes, exactly. But when people say to me, you know, well, Les Mis is the French Revolution. It's like, no, it's a French Revolution. It's a very small blip that probably if he had not talked about in that book would not be half right. as well known, you know, right. That's as so it true. is today. And Hugo, you know, in other books, he, he branches out, but within the scope of Les Mis, everything that he writes about um, happened while he was alive. So um, Hugo was born in 1802. His father was a Napoleonic army man. So he traveled around. He knew that the book main action starts in 1815, right around Waterloo time, and goes through 1832 all during a time when Victor Hugo was witnessing or around or aware of what was going on in these events. Now, it doesn't get published until 1862, while he is in exile, because well after the events of Les Mis, he decides he doesn't like it when France is about to become an empire again under uh, who will become Napoleon III. And so he leaves France, goes into exile largely on the Channel Islands, and then doesn't come back until Napoleon III is overthrown. But the Les Mis itself is actually published while he's on exile, in exile. So he's writing about events that he witnessed, publishing it during a time, it's still about 30 years after these events, because it doesn't, 1832 to 1862, you're still, the people who were reading about it were already 30 years removed from the events that happened, the, the big revolutionary events in it. And I, I found that really interesting. Because you're actually in another empire, reading about basically one of the last big, you know, revolutionary sort of pushes that happen to a totally different person. Like, actually, the person who was replacing. You're in Napoleon III's time reading about the person who was in before him. Yeah. And this is why this revolution fails <laughs> in this movie, because uh, when he's uh, yeah. writing it, uh, there's no victory. But like one uh, like yeah. the first thing that struck to me that is different between that revolution and the other revolutions is that the revolutionary forces, they cry, cry out, vive la France. So like mm -hmm. their idea of revolution is to have France while the other uh, revolutions is just to... It's not, uh, you know, go China, go Russia. It's just let's just create something new. And here right. is there something also something new, but also hearkening back to what we right. tried to do before. Yes. And right. that is not uh, a kingdom, but a republic of everybody, the French. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that was an interesting nuance. It is interesting because the, the overthrow of Charles X and, and the bringing in of, of Louis Philippe is interesting because it happens so fast. Um, you get Charles X, he gets overthrown, and within like two weeks, you have Louis Philippe coming in. So there were a lot of people um, at that point who were kind of like, wait a minute, I thought this was going to be our next big revolution, and it's gone and we just have another king. Mm -hmm. So th there's a lot of like, you stir up that like revolutionary fervor and then just push it right back down again, but it's still simmering there, Yeah. you know, under the surface. So by the time and, you get... To, and you can't stop it. Right. By the time you get to 1832, there's a cholera epidemic that's, you know, going across Europe and it's hitting France. There was, I read one of the books I was looking at for this, it was talking about how there were people who believed that the police were poisoning the water um, to make cholera spread amongst the poor. 
fake news. And they had to be like, no, we're not doing that, I promise. Um, but that was still something that, you know, they, they believed there was still a lot of this um, animosity towards unfulfilled promises. And the in in the book, there was a quote that I wrote into my notes because I went back to the book too. I did not reread um. the whole book, guys, because <laughs> that would right. I'd still no, be going if I, was, if I was rereading it still, I would still be doing it. But where he says that um, in his section in Hugo's section in the novel about uh, the lead up to the big revolutionary barricades that we see in the film, he says that the bourgeoisie is simply the contented portion of the people. Um, and in the, novel, you, in, the novel, in the novel and in the movie, you see the fact that at one point they directly confront the man in the carriage who's, uh, he's dressed in the, the like nice suit and he's definitely part of the bourgeoisie. And you have like Gavroche and the other, uh, quote, lower class people coming at him like, well, what are you going to do for us? Have you forgotten about us? Because the upper class is fine. They've they've pushed down the revolution. They're continuing bopping along as they were. But the people below them are not doing that great, which is, I think, an interesting contrast to the Patriot, because in the Patriot, it's very, you know, rah, rah, we're going to win. Mm-hmm. In Lameness, it's very everybody is still sad at the end. <laughs> because it does you're not going to yeah. do it so i'll i'll just <laughs> state the obvious here it is maybe not the only time in history that there's like the uh a confluence of a pandemic and then downtrodden people uh, getting uh. into some sort of revolutionary <laughs> fervor well look. yes Okay, so I'm hoping that yes. we end up with a lot more living people at the end of it <laughs> than they have in this movie. I mean, okay, that is incredibly yeah. fair. Also, yeah. well, the also they're the, talking about law and order. Javert is all about law and order, and all mm-hmm. these lawless people, uh, you know, rioting and protesting. It's interesting, though, isn't it? How his how Javert's in at least in, in the film adaptation, because there are all different ways of portraying Javert. He's one of my favorite characters in literature because I love the fact that his like huge character flaw is believing that the law is, is the one thing you have to follow all the time. Like that's the thing that he can't handle it when he realizes that this thing that he has invested his entire life into might not always be right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like a huge identity crisis that obviously in the film, spoiler alert, people who have never interacted with Lehman, you know, it breaks him, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately. And I've always thought he was, Yes, he's the bad guy, but he's also a very tragic figure because in his mind, and this is with a lot of villains, he thinks he's right. Like, mm-hmm. And he he believes that he is following out his duty to the end. He's going after this man who has broken his parole and who needs to be brought back to heal because that's his job. There, there's no other crime in, in France, no. just mm-hmm. Jean Valjean, that's it. this guy. That's, this is the most dangerous mm-hmm. criminal That's one of the best things in the, in about the land. Him is, is how they just happen to always be in the same place. <laughs> Right, like super no matter where he shows up, mm-hmm. there they are. It's like oh, it's like ten years later, and he still just happens to be right there working for you and doesn't realize it's him. You know, I I have a I have a big love. It's like uh, Clark Kent, he has the glasses now, so you can't recognize him. It's different. He looks different. I do. Now. I I have a I have a deep love in my heart for Les Mis, which is bizarre because I'm I'm gonna say I mean it's just known already that I'm like the least revolutionary person you'll ever meet. Liz is way more revolutionary than I am. I would probably like be Javert if I was in Lehman. I'd be the person being like, dude, just go back to prison. Like, it'll be fine. And then Liz would be like, no, Christina, that's not how this works. There's, but I there's admit moral that law. 
No, I admit that. I, I'm, you know. This is why Christine did an episode on British loyalists. And I'm like, where's our episode on the Easter Rising, right? Like, right. No, well, it's true because I know if I had lived in the American colonies at that time, which my ancestors were not even near there yet, my family wasn't here until the early 1900s. But, like, I would have absolutely been a loyalist. I would be like, wait a minute, why can't we work this out? <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh, I would have oh been a God, revolutionary no. I would be like, sure. why? Why? Sure. why are we doing this? Where are you, where are you going? <laughs> well, I'm freaking out. Freedom! I, I, I think I've already signed, like, my thing where I'm like, so the Irish revolutionaries and the Irish Civil War and all those things, like, yeah, I know where my family stood and where I'm like, so obviously this is what we would have done. Um, but, I mean, to that point, most people in the American colonies weren't revolutionaries, right? Like it's something like in America. So in our school, we learned like, or in grade school, but also that you um, do during the American revolution, it was like a third were, were loyalists, a third were revolutionaries and a third didn't care. Like a third were literally like, whatever's going to happen. So it's really only one third of the population. Or afraid to declare it. Right. So <laughs> afraid me. to declare either way, or just yeah. we're waiting to see who won. So it's like in the American yeah, elections. Like American election, the third yeah. or quarter of the people decide right. for everybody, and all the rest say, okay, whatever. Yeah. Well, you but you see that in Lamez too. Right. In Lamez, right. The you people know, did not have, stir. And mm-hmm. that was one, interesting. Yeah. They don't show up. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, and one thing comparing it to, because this is, it was very hard for me not to keep comparing it to the stage musical, but because it is an adaptation of the stage musical, one of the benefits of the film. Now, overall, I will tell you, I have to put it out there. Otherwise, my whole universe will just come crashing around me. I will always tell you to pick the stage musical over a film. (laughs) I will always tell you to do that. If you really want to go listen to it, people who are hearing this, go find the 10th anniversary recording from Britain. It's the best one. I know I own over 40 recordings of Les Mis in many languages. I promise you, go for the 10th anniversary concert. You cannot fail. However, that said, the benefit of a movie is on a stage production of Les Mis, it's very bare. It's basically um, a lot of the visuals are in your head, mm-hmm. and the main set piece that you get is eventually the barricade. In this film, you get amazing visuals mm-hmm. of what that world was like that you do not get on stage. You just don't. You're not going to get exactly what it was like for him to be in prison as you are when you watch this movie and you see them in the water and like with the chains or later on when they show Lamarck's funeral and the students um, starting to pick at the revolution with the big, you know, the processions coming by, you don't get to see the giant, my, one of my favorite things from the Napoleonic period, the giant Napoleonic elephant in the movie. Um, and in the book, Gavroche lives in this huge elephant, which was a statue that was started to be built under Napoleon the first but never got finished so it was really just like a giant cast of a statue and never actually became one and by the time 1832 is coming around it's like decrepit it's like starting to fall apart and it continues to be mm-hmm. that way until eventually you know it's not there anymore much to my dismay because I would go and see it um, but you don't get mm-hmm. those visuals when you're looking at the stage production and it really you know, regardless of what you want to say about adapting it and changes that were made from stage to screen or whatever, or book to stage to screen or book to screen and all the different ways you can turn it around, the visuals of this really show you exactly what it's like to go from all these like thousands of people are mm-hmm. waiting to watch this funeral procession of this man who was viewed as like their last possible hero slash um, somebody who had ties to the old way of being because he was, you know, from the Napoleonic period a little bit as well. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're at the barricades and nobody shows up. 
right? So all these guys are like, yes, here we are. We've got all this support. Everybody's like poking at the, <coughs> excuse me, the officials. And then like five minutes later, everything disperses and you're at the barricade and it's so mm-hmm. isolated. And they talk about it. People aren't coming. Mm-hmm. They haven't stirred. Mm-hmm. They're scared. They're going home. Yeah, it's all great to be in a rally and cry when you've got tons of people around you. But not everybody really was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm going to let myself get killed for this. Which I said to Liz, you know, there's, a, there's lines in the musical where <clears throat> they talk about, well, you know, we're going to die. We're probably going to die here. And we have to be okay with the fact that we are going to die here. Because that is not, our lives are not what matters. What matters is that our movement and our, our what, the things that we're pushing for, the republicanism, the rights moves forward, which in my mind, again, probably because of being of Irish descent, I was like, so this is like the Easter Rising. You see this thing that happens a lot in revolutions where the people who are actually fighting in it are aware that they might not make it through and they have to hope that their dying will mm-hmm. not cause everything to fall apart. Like in the Easter Rising in 1916, they basically were like, the British are going to come in and steamroll us, right? But we have to hope that the fact that we are making this stand in Dublin around us will cause everybody else to rise up. And in the Easter Rising, it doesn't really... After World War One. Here also in the French Revolution, we, we said it takes 100 years. Right, exactly. Yeah. And in the French Revolution, right. And here in this movie or this story, you see that like they get crushed. Yeah. I mean, they get like completely obliterated. And the whole thing, the whole event that you know has become so famous from Les Mis all took place, well, the revolutionary part of it, mm-hmm. all took place in 24 to 48 hours. It's done. It's gone. Right? So if Hugo's not writing about it, do we even know that it happened? So I I was struck by that as well. Um, so there's, and this is a and this is why I was struck by that. So there is a, ch- a children's book um, by Lucy Maud Montgomery in the Anne of Green Gables series. I don't know if the Anne of Green Gables series is as popular in um, Europe or Israel, but um, it was written in say 1900 to like 1940. And there's one book that takes place during World War One, and in the book. There's a whole discussion about um, the Battle of the Marne and will the line hold and this whole thing. And it goes on for a whole chapter, right? Like, oh, this. And then finally the line holds and there's the miracle of the Marne. And so I read that when I was, what, 11 or 12. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what a pivotal moment of World War One was the miracle of the Marne. Like, everyone must talk about it. And then my first world history class, it was one sentence in a textbook. Like, the line was held at the Marne. Because, and I was like, what the? This was such a massive moment. And that's the thing with this, right? Because of Les Mis, we're all like, this must have been such a defining, massive moment in the multiple French revolutions. And yet it's only because Victor Hugo wrote about it in a way that we even talk about it. Like it's, it's, it's really cool because I think that's a large reason why people conflate it with the like actual French revolution, French revolution, because it seems like it should be such a big deal. You know, you've got this huge and, but, you know, the musical was already out when I was growing up. So it was a sort of thing that like it was this epic, like everybody knew about this big story about what was happening in France, you know, and I'm sitting there going, OK, this is going to be like a huge thing. And then you look it up and five minutes later, you're like, oh, wow, it really was not a huge yeah. thing at all. It was a huge thing to the people who were in it. It was a huge thing to the people who died. It was a huge thing to the relatives of the people who died or who witnessed it and all that sort of situation. It made mm-hmm. enough of an impression on Hugo to write about it. But in terms of like the uh, the scope of French history, it's really like it's a blip because it gets put down and you still have 
Louis Philippe is still there for another over decade, you know, before he gets actually, you know, ousted in favor of eventually Napoleon III. But it seems like, you know, they even say in, which is not a line that's in the musical on the stage, but might be now. At the time it was not, but it is in the musical for the film um, when he basically, Gavroche says, you know, we had a king and we got rid of him. And now we've got another king who's just as bad as the last king. And if you don't really know the time period, there are several points in French history when you can say that that's what's happening. <laughs> like, he doesn't say the names of the kings at the time. So if you're looking at it and you're not really sure, you could be taking that a lot of different different ways, especially because Les Mis covers such a large um, swath of time compared to The Patriot, right? The Patriot's very concentrated in its depiction. Oh, yeah. And The Patriot, yeah. The Patriot, like... I mean, it only, in a real way, only covers a very few years, and then it just, at the very end, just does that scroll at the right. end, right? Where it's like, and then things right. happened, and then the war ended, and everything was great. And you're like, okay. But yeah, no, Les Mis is, um, it does, it covers, what, from 1815, but even before that, for when um, Jean Valjean is arrested. I mean, it's, it's an just... Epic right, up until slightly after 1832. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about the revolutionary depiction in Les Mis for me, which you don't see in The Patriot because it ends where it ends, is um, Marius's survivor's guilt that comes into mm-hmm. play um, when he gets that big empty chairs, empty tables song and the fact that he's the only, basically the only person left from his entire circle of people. And he has to live with that. And so he has that moment where he's sitting there and he's talking about how everybody's gone. And I, I think it's really important because... And it would be actually even more interesting to see if they had won and people still died and you're talking about mm-hmm. it because you, there's there's no revolution where you don't lose something, right? Mm-hmm. And and for him, they lost the revolution that they were trying to start and he lost all of his friends. So he has to sit there now and find his way in this like whole new world and be so excited that he got Cosette and he's been so into this like whole time, but he's lost everything else, right? So even if they had won you could still have huge survivor's guilt because you made it through the other side and somebody else mm-hmm. did not, which we don't really see in, in Lehman's or in The Patriot. You don't see a, a winner's survivor's mm-hmm. guilt. Right, because even though um, Mel Gibson, yeah, I'm just going to call him that. If I can say Heath Ledger, you can say Mel Gibson. At least I didn't say, well, there I we go. said Hugh Jackman all through my conversation about Lehman's, but I did not. <laughs> well, good on you. So Mel Gibson <laughs> loses his two sons, um, and they even have, so the, there is that one moment of um, where they, they go to that man's farm because the British are attacking the farms and they find mm-hmm. out that his wife and child are dead. Yes. And he commits suicide. Yes. Um, there. So I just spoiled it for everyone who hasn't seen The Patriot. And so you get that moment of that. But even there, the rest of them, they're sent home, but then they all come back. Right? right. Like we even lose that nuance. Like they tried to say like, oh, look how horrifying this is for some of the men involved. Right. And yet they still couldn't do it. And they had to end with, however, we all won. So it's okay in the end. Right. Which Les Mis is not like that. No, Les Mis is very much not like that. Yeah. I think, I think it's it's a difference between the way how the French look at their history and how the Americans look at their history. Mm -hmm. They're always improving to a more perfect union. And of course we did some bad things later, but we're trying our best, Mm -hmm. trying our best. Mm -hmm. So it has to be optimistic. Well, it's also interesting too, because because you have somebody who's writing mm-hmm. um, The Patriot who's living mm-hmm. now and writing it back then when Hugo's like, no, I saw this. Yep. Like, I, I, I know, I read the newspapers when this was mm-hmm. happening. Like, it's a totally different perspective looking back and trying to create your, like, national mm-hmm. myth as opposed to writing about something that's happening. Yep. Yeah. 
there wasn't an end, uh, uh, a positive end result for him that yeah. you to, to, to start from. But Rutger, you've been very silent to say something. I feel like he's thinking really hard about all of this right now. <laughs> well, well, I am. And, uh, and well, I think also thinking about dinner. <laughs> no, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I was thinking about uh, what you said, uh, Christine, about just the visual aspect yeah. of it. Because like part of what makes this movie kind of appealing is that you just see very beautifully, you know, the French national sport of tearing up Paris and, and throwing things <laughs> and building barricades. They yeah, they, they had another yeah. one this week. And, uh, <laughs> and it, yeah. it, looks, it looks amazing, but it's a really, it, it also really plays up the, uh, the romanticism. And in a way, it's also kind of a good thing that it feels like it's the flower of the youth mm-hmm. and they're dying for a cause. Right. And it, yeah, it's, it's very romantic in that way. Um, and probably if, if this one had succeeded and everybody else was going to go on the chopping block, it would have not been as romantic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. There's definitely the romantic tragedy right. aspect. To it's it. very, I think it's very useful to have a revolutionary history. Uh, it's very useful for the French today, for them to keep their leaders uh, on their toes, that if something, uh, they don't like something, boom, they go right. strike. Gilets jaunes, gilets jaunes, all that. I think that the, Ameri- the, the revolutionary aspect of the American Revolution has kind of been lost uh, in the American story. And from now, listening to people talking about what's going on now, or let's say uh, the last year, a few years, it seems that people are trying to bring back, like, hey, this country was founded by revolutionaries. So coming out and demanding uh, things that you feel you are due, it's actually an American tradition. Right. It's, it's definitely a different perspective. In France, it's very much, or well, in French history, it's very much, well, you need to keep on your game because if you're not on your game, you're mm-hmm. out. Um, and there's definitely a push, or there used to be a push, I not in the school system personally anymore, of the belief that we did this revolution, this great thing happened, and now we've got mm-hmm. it. Yeah, we were, we did it, we finished it, it was right. And then the Civil War made everything even more right. And so we don't have to. So, yeah, there is that, that idea. Anymore. Yeah. Where, yeah, where it's, it's all done. Right. Where, where France is like, um, you better watch your back. Right. Especially in the 1800s. Like, we did an episode, Liz and I, um, last year, where we talked about important things that happened at Notre Dame in the 19th, 19th century and it was literally like this person got overthrown then this person got mm-hmm. overthrown then this person got overthrown then this person died and we're looking at it and going one person lived through so could live through so many mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. regime changes and people wearing the crown and not wearing the crown that it's like insane to think about for at least for the two mm-hmm. of us who have basically lived in you know right the same government system for the whole mm-hmm. time it's yeah. super impressive there's no regime changes 200 and some years of american mm-hmm. history this uh, this thing holds up. It holds up. It's uh, very yeah, impressive. It's it's just well, I mean we have people. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know by the time is... that uh, this episode comes out, maybe it, uh, <laughs> maybe it doesn't hold up any longer. But as of today, June seventh, twenty twenty. I will have taken over. It will be fine. <laughs> and I'm going to be running her household. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see how that goes with um, with things. Yeah, Christine, don't. Uh, there's a lot of candidates. Yeah. Christine, come hey. on. <laughs> we'll just we'll get out there. Um, but it's also so okay to bring it back um, to the class issue that was raised a little bit when we were talking about how Les Mis um, 
focuses on the lower classes, right? Also the students, like that's the merriest thing and everything, but it's also the lower classes and how things haven't changed after, you know, these 30 some odd years of revolutions Mm -hmm. for, or 40 years at that point, um, for the lower classes. And yet, like we talked about in The Patriot, most of the revolutionaries we're seeing are the upper class guys. And those are the guys who are going to remain in political power after. Like, that's why at the beginning of The Patriot, he gets to go to Charleston, Charlestown back then, um, Charleston and vote because he's already one of the landed. I mean, it was England. It would be the landed gentry. Like, he's already there. He's basically the guy in the carriage. He's the guy in the carriage in Les Mis that they're, like, ripping this stuff from. They're already the bourgeoisie. And so we then go to to France in the in Les Mis and it's it's not about the bourgeoisie so it's also very interesting right. on who's depicted as the revolutionaries who's depicted as the good guys like we don't get right. that nuance in the patriot either it's easy it's easy to forget that Hugo was a very political person mm-hmm. and at multiple times in his life actually served in French politics because you're seeing in Les Mis he like bullet points basically all of the things that he was talking about like he really wanted he was really into prison reform at one point and then he was really into helping women and so you literally go through those beats within the film you know coming from the book where you see you know the way Valjean is treated in prison and then the way he is when he gets out and how he has to deal with the parole system that prevents him from basically getting ahead in life because it's so tough and then you transfer that into he breaks parole so he's finally able to get his like new start on life by abandoning this prison system that is trying to keep him down forever and then you switch over to Fantine who is the like epitome of a woman who can't get anything to go right for her and who has all these things happen to her that put her farther and farther down the social ladder um, you know, based on the way the system works for her in France at that time. And then you move into the, the revolutionary aspect, which is where more of his political ideals come out. So it would be, you know, it's really interesting to me to see how he, well, I mean, maybe it would be even more interesting if he had done it in a briefer <laughs> version, but like he, how he was able to fit all of these things into it and make it still a coherent piece that can be very heartbreaking. You know, without, at least for me, it never really feels like you're being bashed over the head mm-hmm. with it. You're just following these people's lives and it's so well crafted that you get invested in them personally that it makes the points even better than some of his chapters where he's kind of <laughs> Best book, by the way, when I was when I was a kid, I read a very, like a children's really thin version of Les Mis because I wanted to know what it was about before my parents took me to see the stage version when I was like 12. And then I slowly worked my way through bigger and bigger abridged versions until I got to the full length one when I was in eighth grade. And that was when I realized why abridged versions exist. And I know people are going to get mad at me for saying that. But there are some chapters in Les Mis, I am sorry, could have used it. Oh, oh no. Shots fired. I'm just putting that out there. And I love Les Mis. Yeah. Across history. I know. Look. That's what we're getting the hate mail for. We are going to get the hate email I, for Christine. I love Les Mis. When I was a kid, I had every student's backstory memorized. Okay. I could tell you every single one based on how they were described in the book. I had favorites. I knew all of that. But I will still say it could have used an editor. I'm just saying. Also, the Bible. The Bible could also Waiting. use uh, another editor. If we're, if, if we're going to get the hate mail, I'm just like, uh, I don't know. Let's just, just get the, the, the whole of it. Also long. <laughs> <laughs> also very, very long. That is, that is also yeah. a long book. 
the Lord of the Rings. Why? Uh, hold, why on, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> on. Anyway. Oh, now we're really getting all the hate mail. I mean, come on, Tolkien. Okay, anyway. Liz is going to change the second half of this to be the revolutionary Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, are you kidding? I could talk about World War One and Lord of the Rings, but we won't. We won't. I'll just think yes, it in my head. Lame is. I absolutely love it. And I actually like the way it depicts revolutions because... It's not told by a winner. I think I, I, I think it also lasted because there's this uh, timeless battle between conservatism and progressivism, whatever you want to call right. them, but people who want to enact right. change mm-hmm. and people who know this is the way it is, then let's not change right. it. And during that time, it was hard to imagine what could replace a system that has been there for so long. Uh, like we would have such a hard time to try to imagine living under a different uh, government system that is not representative democracy in some way. But how would that work? Just it seems very dangerous. And obviously, if if you look at the recent history, you see that it was indeed dangerous. You know, a, a revolution that devours itself, and so many people died, and the yeah. success and the fruits were mixed at best in real time. Yeah, I mean, that's especially pertinent to 19th century France, right? Because no matter what they did, kings kept coming back, right? Mm-hmm. They kept thinking, this is a time we're going to have a change. And I am I love monarchy history. So, like, that's great for me, looking at it from now and looking back at it. But, like, living through it, if you're looking at it and you're thinking, this is a time we're going to change, you're going to get right. They just keep coming back. Yeah. They keep coming back for oh almost 100 goodness. years. It makes me feel of, uh, of contemporary Israel. Yeah, new ones. <laughs> How there's this king that we try to topple, but he keeps coming back, keeps coming back. King Bibi. And just like no matter what happens, he just stays there and stays there. And so I could really identify with the revolutionaries there. Like no matter what we try and do. So maybe I'll go and uh, I'll I'll go to exile like uh, Victor Hugo. That's what I'll do. There you go. And then you can write your big treaties and have it sent back and become a famous novelist. Yeah, so many. There's, uh, there are too book. many left-wing Israelis who write movies and uh, books and TV shows about the injustices. So if there's uh, too much competition. I think I'll just uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll keep doing my podcast. Thank you. <laughs> you just don't want to have that competition. That's the that's the thing. I know. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. On our website, www.footnotinghistory.com, you can find overviews of The Patriot and Les Miserables in case you haven't seen either. Additionally, if you're interested in owning some Footnoting History merch, including our masks, you can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or on Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>